Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. Brought to you by Bank of Ireland on News Talk. First up, we're going to take a look at the business stories that have been breaking overnight and indeed earlier in the week. I'm delighted to be joined uh, this morning by Susan Hayes Culleton, aka the Positive Economist, and Ian Mallon. He's the Business of Sport columnist with the Irish Examiner. You're both very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Bobby. Thank you, um, Bobby. Ian, we might start with you. Um, the front page of the uh, Irish Daily Mail today, if you owe property tax, we'll call your employer. So says the revenue. Should we be worried? Very interesting story, Bobby, on the front of the uh, Irish Daily Mail, as you say, by Garrett McNamee and Brian Mahan, uh, in which revenue have been sending threatening let- letters to members of the public, informing them that they will let their employer know that they are not paying the relevant property tax. Now, the sense of outrage in this story is justified in that a number of people received these letters, according to the Daily Mail, who had paid the, up their property okay. tax. Um, and interesting as well, Susan, that really the revenue know everything. So <laughs> if if you want to do anything or you want to chase somebody down, revenue is probably the best route. Well, the ROS system really is quite easy to use most of the time. And the My Inquiries functionality, let's say, works very well. The challenge is in this case, if people sign up to the direct debit, they were still getting the letter. So they were being in compliance. And I just noted interestingly as well is that the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Finance, John McGuinness, told the mail that the issue had been raised with him by several constituents. So generally speaking, if you want to be compliant and and revenue makes it easy to be compliant, well, then everything should be fine. What stood out for me, though, is the challenge of automation, Bobby, is that Mm -hmm. we're uh, like lots of businesses are factoring automation into their business, as indeed revenue is. But when it goes wrong, it goes wrong. It's like that uh, direct debit that you tried to cancel for your Sky subscription or whatever it is, it can, it can. It's easy to sign up, but signing out is slightly trickier. And you'd probably wonder about the legal standpoint here. If revenue are sending these letters legally, they're probably safe to do so. And if uh, not sticking up for revenue in any way, shape, or form, but if uh, revenue can't get the fees that they're due from source, then go to the source of that source. Uh, yeah. The employee. Well, I have you there, Ian. Uh, front page of the Irish Independent: No permission for thousands of Airbnbs in rental hotspots. This is quite a bizarre story in one way. We talk about a broken planning system in this country. This to me is uh, indicative of that. Uh, We've got all these councils saying that you need planning permission to operate an Airbnb, but nobody seems to be applying for it. Bobby, this is a bugbear of mine for some time, Airbnb, and it's uh, almost in any state, uh, ruling of it by government. uh, And I know there is a housing crisis and that's for another day. But this case is quite funny uh, in the independent in that um, the uh, amount of people registering their properties, particularly in rent pressure zones, is effectively, it's not quite nil, but it's very, very low. Uh, in Dublin City, for example, the numbers are, are negligent. And in places like Kerry, uh, I think 27 people out of a 1,000 have registered their properties. Coming back to you, the first story about revenue, and if you report, you know, maybe income from an Airbnb to revenue, like, could they not just tell planning that this guy's got revenue from uh, a premises in Dunleary or wherever it is, uh, he's getting an extra rent. Uh, he isn't uh, in in he is he hasn't got planning permission. So, 
Why are they not being stopped doing this? Oh, but because, in my opinion, it's very easy to see why that's the case, Bobby, is because I, I did a very quick calculation. The last part on this piece says the majority of hosts in Ireland are families who share the primary home for about three nights a month on average. Now, multiply three by 12 and you get 36. So that's an average 36 days a year. However, in the middle of the piece, it says that the requirement is only required if the person's primary residence is being let on a short term basis for more than 90 days. So a lot of them don't need to. Well, that's okay. So then it's it's so this is a, no, a nothing story then. Well, that that's what I'm wondering is that I, I see the point that it's making is that a lot of people should be doing mm. it, but a lot of people aren't required to do well, it if it's, it's only under 90 days well, or well, unless it's a second, pres- a second residence. Well, let's look at it another way. The same article tells us that there are a thousand homes uh, available through Airbnb in Dunleary. Yep. Right? And uh, the basically Dunleary have what received pretty much no applications. Yep. So I would suggest that of that 1,000, maybe they're not all. Oh, I'm certainly not suggesting that they're not all at all at all. But, uh, but just my, my point here is that I think we need to distinguish here who needs to do this and who kind of should be doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It also doesn't uh, highlight the uh, penalties for not doing it. So maybe there is no reason why you would bother doing it. Yeah. There's no penalties or, or actions that can be taken against you. Well, slow news day and all that good stuff. Let's move to more important stuff uh, because this has been uh, on the world stage throughout the week. Uh, Cliff Taylor writes about it in today's uh, Irish Times. There are echoes now of the run-up to the 2008 crash. Um, And I don't know if people remember uh, Patrick's weekend uh, when Anglo-Irish Bank, there was all the rumours. It was this very weekend, all those years ago. But what about contagion here, Susan? Just because Silicon Valley Bank is in America, but then we have Credit Suisse, we have a couple of other mm. smaller banks. It, it just could sentiment prevail here, and could it spook uh, economies and indeed uh, other banks and. Uh, EM, IMFs and all those I mean, kind of uh, yeah. regulator type people. In essence, all all that has has happened. Uh, well, particularly in in the stock market and and so on from there. And I might just give people a, a quick rundown through what has happened this week. In That's essence, a good idea. Yeah. Um, in Silicon Valley Bank, so the Asset Liability Management Committee uh, over the past two years looked at what would we do if we were to put the deposits of our customers into government bonds as distinct to, let's say, putting it on cash. They decided if they were going to put into government bonds, well, then that would lead to an extra 36 million in earnings. But it didn't. But it bonds didn't. Bonds went south. Instead. And in- they went with it. Precisely. Interest rate changes went from less than, or slightly over 0% to over 4%. That led to a $15 billion decline in the value of the portfolio. Right. Moving on from there, then depositors said, oh, oh right, this, this doesn't sound good. And in one day, $42 billion walked out of the bank. That's the second biggest bank bank run in history and it's the fastest. I think that's key. Now, bear in mind, a lot of people say, OK, I never heard of this bank before, but it was the 16th biggest bank in the US financial system just before its collapse. And it was doing business with almost half of all VC-backed startups. Yeah. Then we had what happened this week, which is that suddenly then, we, then the, the issue is, is our money going to be safe? Big question over that. And then people started looking around the world to say, well, where else could could this be the case? Ultimately, that is that is what happened. And the key thing that um, that uh, is being discussed about in Cliff Taylor's piece here today is now 
in the case of the ECB, it still decided to go on and to increase its interest rates, even though that there was a shake across confidence. And his point here is that now how do we handle this? How do we protect banks and manage inflation at the same time? The ECB have decided to increase interest rates. And as we'll also see in other pieces then, that is also seen as a mark of confidence in the European banking sector. Okay, I think it might be time to discuss uh, our next guest who's uh, uh, standing by on the phone, uh, John Isle. He's the deputy uh, business editor with the Irish Independent and he writes uh, in this morning's newspaper, after a week of turmoil, forces that shook banks look to spill over into the real economy. Good morning, John Isle. How are you? Very well, Bobby. How are you? Real good. John, uh, you say in your article that we move from rude health to fear of contagion. We were just debating Cliff Taylor's article there in the Irish Times. Uh, We reminded ourselves of St. Patrick's Day 2008 this very weekend. And is it about confidence, John? Is it about a couple of things happening and then markets get spooked, banks get spooked, people? Is it just like almost like a domino effect? Do we need to be careful of that? Well, that's certainly a a factor, Um, but I want to be cautious about repeating a lot of the same mistakes of the last crisis when we sort of denied reality for a long time and sort of, uh, you know, a lot of commentators said, well, let's not talk ourselves into a crisis. There was definitely a real crisis there. It wasn't just a crisis of sentiment. I think there are some differences this time around. You'll recall that the, the problem last time was a global overinvestment and over leveraging by banks into real estate. And that was true in the US, the UK, Ireland, really all over the place. And that eventually spread uh, to the sovereigns, right? We saw the yeah. problem with Ireland couldn't you know, keep up with its debt and the various other fringe countries of, of Europe as well. What's happening this time started in a sector where most banks don't have heavy exposure, and that's the, the tech sector. So Silicon Valley Bank uh, was a special case in that regard. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about the exceptions now. Credit sure. Suisse is also a bank, a bank that was troubled long before last week. It's had difficulty achieving its profitability targets really for, for over a decade. Uh, and, and then sort of what's happened now is it's been caught up in this wave of sentiment, which has, which basically causes investors to start testing the metal of various weak points in the markets, et cetera, et cetera. So just to bring it to what's most important to us, the Irish banks, I think it does have to be pointed out that they all had a very strong set of results for 2022. Now, that doesn't mean that they will have strong results in perpetuity, but their outlook was also very good. And their exposures on their own balance sheets don't really match what you see in Credit Suisse or Silicon Valley Bank. In fact, they put a lot of their surplus cash right into the ECB rather than into bonds that are exposed to interest rate rates, uh, Uh, interest rate uh, increases. Another point you make in your article this morning, John, is to, to get a sense of scale that, you know, when we're talking about the Silicon Valley Bank and those other two uh, banks, the First Republic in San Francisco and Signature in New York, you're saying that the US Federal Reserve emergency lending to these banks was greater than during the Lehman moment in 2008 when the entire financial system was crashing. So that tells me that, you know, that that the U.S. Federal Reserve moved really quickly and comprehensively to to sort of cut this off at the pass, which I think, again, is reassuring. I think you're right there, Bobby. It it, it points out two things. One is the seriousness with with which they took 
took this and how quickly they moved. And also, let, let's not let's not pretend it wasn't serious. It was a, a very big deal last weekend, and the, and the Federal Reserve moved very quickly. The fact that they provided so much liquidity is a testament to the new new tools that were put in place, not just in the United States but in Europe as well, to prevent the next crisis. And if you look over here, uh, one of the reasons I think the ECB feels a lot more confident raising rates, even in the teeth of a, a you know a, a market panic, in fact, is that European banks are so much more well capitalized than they were. If you look back at our, our weakest bank in 2008, Anglo-Irish Bank, I think they had core tier one of just about 4%. You look at the total capital of the banks now, and they're 15, 16%, you know, yeah, much, a, much yeah, higher. It's a different landscape robust. completely. Listen, John, we let you go. Thanks for your analysis. Uh, it's always good to hear and a great piece. Well done for written writing uh, with such clarity today. It's, it's also somewhat reassuring uh, to read that maybe things aren't uh, as contagious as we might have first feared. Ian? I, I just wonder uh, really if that is the case. Uh, not John's commentary, obviously, which was excellent, but what the situation will look like next week, seeing yeah. that the share price, uh, the value of AIB and Bank of Ireland both went down yesterday. Uh, well, are we saying that it's just, John said as well in his piece, it just four trading sessions until Wednesday, Irish bank stocks shed four billion in value. That's significant, Susan. Uh, it, well, e- First of all, yes, it is. And we have to bear in mind as well that we need to distinguish the difference between a depositor and a shareholder, as well as a bondholder. People who have money in a bank are are expecting, obviously, with significant merit that their money would still be there. The share price is different. If you own shares in a bank, then they're going to be likely to be far more volatile. And also as well, shares are public and I apologies if I'm over explaining this, but they're public, which means that you can sell them at a moment's notice. If you see something that spooks you on the news, you you can make a difference uh, and and sell your shares right away. That's that is the difference in this case. I was looking around at other things in the Irish banking sector. And households saved 3.9 billion in the last quarter in 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 the banks, and also it was just out from the uh, Banking Payments Federation of Ireland as well as that there was one billion euro of mortgage approvals in January 2023. 51.2 percent of those were first-time buyers, and that's an 8.9 percent growth year on year. This is the question, really: is what is what are banks going to do as a result of this? Are they going mm-hmm. to reduce their lending? Is that ultimately where we're going to see the effect? As John says, uh, the real the spillover into the real economy. Which, as Ian says, dealing with the housing crisis, that's what I'm going to be watching. Yeah, no, I. Yep, uh, just two other factors I'd love to know uh, a little bit more about, and that'll probably emerge in the next uh, the next few days. Again, number one was, and I spoke to somebody about this yesterday who 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 was a banker uh, that uh, the bank didn't have a chief risk officer for almost all of last year, which does sound extraordinary. Only in January did they uh, appoint a successor to the previous. Uh, officer who left in uh, early early 2022 and also um, that it appears that the executive team running uh, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank was very remote so you had a CEO based in Miami you had uh, the risk officer before she left based in Washington DC and uh, rest the rest of the executive team on the west coast yeah I think I think that's a fair point Ian uh, some some early warning signs there that maybe should have been heated um, Susan can I bring you back to uh, eurozone inflation cooling in February 
underlying price growth accelerating. What's your thoughts now on where we are with inflation in Europe and indeed in Ireland? Okay, so inflation, the CPI in Ireland slowed for the the three months before February and then picked up again. So in essence, we're currently looking at European inflation at 8.5% across the area, the single currency area and inflation in the Irish economy unexpectedly rose to 8.5% in February, um, which is up from an increase of 7.8% in January. So that, by the way, I just need to, to specifically point out as well is that that obviously points out that there is increasing inflation. But what I found int- interesting in Ian's current piece is that he talks about the difference between inflation, increasing inflation here and core inflation. Again, let me just explain this briefly. So uh, core inflation is when you strip out the volatile food and energy prices. Now, I don't think the analysis of this conversation should strip that out because that is what an awful lot of people spend their money on, Bobby. And yeah. so uh, Irish households spend 8% of their budget on food. It's actually below the EU average of 14%. And also on average uh, for a, a typical three bedroom house, and I know typical is not very typical, but we spend about €2,023 Euros on our energy. So bear in mind, they are the things yeah. that of course no, are I think that's a fair point. Uh, Ian, um, the Irish Examiner, your own paper indeed, is telling us that wholesale energy and oil prices fall, uh, sensing some optimism here, but when are we going to see these at the pump? Um, Basically, what we were saying here was uh, uh, that basically the European Central Bank interest rate hike has seen wholesale energy prices dropped by almost ten euro per megawatt hour, and crude oil also tumbling. So, it, 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 that story and the eurozone inflation uh, are are slightly optimistic stories today. Yeah. The one with the uh, energy energy prices coming down uh, is most welcome. The big problem there is by the time it trickles down to the punters or to, yeah. to the customers. Yeah, no, I, 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 but it's still good to see it mm-hmm. because then we can shout for it and say, <laughs> when can we get this? Um, Adrian Weckler, I think, has an interesting piece, Ian, in today's uh, Irish Independent um, in, in, in the supplement, uh, the the review piece. Uh, basically, he's talking about, has tech snuggled, uh, has, uh, has it smuggled in a post-Union Ireland? And he really talks about you know, what's happened in tech and what's happened to people and their jobs in tech. And really that, you know, that it is a kind of a non-union environment. You know, people are, are they're well paid, they're sort of on their own. Uh, and then they were, a lot of people were badly treated uh, in recent times. Uh, he cites Twitter letting people go, people being frozen out of their emails. They're just bad practice by employers in this regard. What did you make of the piece? I thought it was a very good piece, very well written. Uh, it leaves a lot of questions, which Adrian doesn't try to un- uh, and uh, uh, try to answer. He just puts them out there and says, look, why, why, for example, are the unions not making a drive into the tech sector, particularly now in this instability where we see a lot of tech companies pairing back? And where you have, as you just highlighted there, Bobby, the scandalous behaviour of Twitter, uh, amongst others, uh, in treating, uh, in, in bringing in US-style law uh, rules where they can lock people out of their jobs, lock people out of their emails and all that sort of stuff. And Adrian just wonders, uh, is there an appetite for the unions? Uh, and he finishes with, will the lack of unions come back to haunt uh, the tech sector or the employment sector in Ireland? And that's 
a question we will await to see. And his, line, his last line is, but by then they may have already ceded rights for workplace risottos. <laughs> That's bribing pizzas. Pizzas and beer on a Friday night, Susan. Yeah, I suppose I, I was thinking about this. Like, it's 110 years since the 1913 lockout and obviously we're, we're, like, life is very, very different since then, naturally enough to say it's a very obvious point, but I was just thinking about, like, the changes in the workplace. First of all, we're all always on through, through our mobile. So, that idea of workplace hours, of course, has changed a little bit. We now have workplace design, we have flexibility, we have, you know, the, now people as well, and he talks a lot about contract uh, contractor work, he said it brings mobility, opportunity or even independence. So the thing is, is that workplaces are different. And I think when you talk about, say, the, the behaviour in the tech firms, that is, th- those specific references he's making to being locked out of your email, etc., is recent. You don't set up a union overnight. Yeah. So in many ways, I think the culture of, of these tech firms and so on, they're, they have a different type of culture. So if there is to be a union in an environment like that, I think they'd have to be thinking slightly differently than James Larkin, who did a great job in his day. Yeah. Um, Irish milliners forced to go to the UK to source materials. It's on the back page of the Irish Examiner, Ian. Um, uh, a lady called uh, Sinead Bohan of uh, Sinead B. Millery making hats for years but uh, has to go to the UK now to get uh, raw materials and has been crippled by customs charges. This is a very interesting story, particularly in the week that's in it, uh, at the end of Cheltenham, where most of us lost our shirts and not our hats. But uh, Sinead uh, Bohan makes the point that the uh, materials she requires aren't available or readily available in Ireland. And because now of crippling uh, customs charges with the UK, that cost now is becoming so high that inevitably the price of hats is going up. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, And uh, finally, Susan, um, loyal employee, watch out. Your boss might exploit you. Now, this is, uh, it's, it's, it's somewhat related to Ian Weckler's piece, but basically what this piece is telling us by Pat Hagen in the Irish Daily Mail is that the more loyal and the more flexible and the more giving you are to your employer, the more likely you are to be taken advantage of. Well, as an employer... That shoe can also go on the other foot. <laughs> uh, look, I suppose, yeah, I, I can I can see where, where this study might come from, which is that the person who is willing and obliging can often be the one who's asked to do more. Because it might be easier to ask that person than the guy who doesn't want to do it. Uh, well, and, and it's interesting, it's the guy that doesn't want to do it. I, I will just leave the audience figure that out now for themselves. But I look, I mean, for all employers out there, myself and yourself included there, Bobby, we need to always make sure that we're being fair to everyone, but likewise. Yeah, I think you could also go the other way and that those who are the most loyal and the most uh, diligent are also the ones most likely to succeed and go through the ranks. And also maybe the most likely to get promoted or be given further opportunity because they put their hand up to take it. So a very balanced debate I must say on our last piece uh, the loyal employee watch out your boss might exploit you. So a huge thanks uh, to my business reviewers this morning Susan Hayes Culleton the positive economist and Ian Mann uh, the uh, business of sport columnist with the Irish Examiner thank you both for joining us and uh, enjoy the match later today we'll do that we'll take your advice Bobby thank you Bobby Down to Business with Bobby Kerr brought to you by Bank of Ireland Saturday morning at 11 on News Talk